Greetings, everyone. Oopsies. Um, thank you for joining me today on Turning a Moment into a Movement. I am Jay Love. I represent the Justice for Gerard movement. Gerard is my son who was um, uh, wrongfully convicted of a crime he didn't do, innocent, and he went to prison for that crime. And because of the journey with him and all the people that I met on that journey, um, all the families and loved ones who also had um, a, a wrongful conviction, uh, a loved one, um, it inspired this platform, which is called Turning a Moment into a Movement. And so thank you for joining us. Um, and I want to say to uh, the ones who are watching on YouTube and Twitter, hello. I sometimes forget you guys, but hello. And also hello to those who might be listening or watching later. I appreciate you. It's because of you. Uh, it's the reason why we do this. I'm not in my normal studio, so if I seem out of sync, that's because uh, we had an ice storm here in Michigan. And uh, my power is still out. And so I'm in my son's studio. So my other son. And so uh, thank you for joining me, I guess, again. So anyway, we have an awesome conversation that's going to go on today. And um, I want you guys to pay attention because this, um, these stories are stories that um, could be anyone. You know, we we talk about Gerard, you know, every week when I come on, I tell you about him. He was in the Michigan Department of Corrections for two years. There are people who are fighting for their loved ones who've been in there 10, 20, 30 years. And this is a story or stories about um, just regular people that this happens to. So um, thank you for joining us again. I'm going to bring in... Um, Rabbitia. Greetings, Rabbitia. Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening, Jay. Hi. How, how are you, you doing? I'm making it. <laughs> You're making it. Staying warm? Yes. Oh, hopefully. <laughs> well, I am so glad to be here this evening for us to have this conversation and for us to realize the, the actual activities that go on. Um, behind our eyes behind you know under underground we don't know where where why they do what they do what possesses people to charge someone and put them in 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 jail or prison for life or for any amount of time and not really know if they're convicted or not i mean that is just is mind-boggling yeah. um a lot of times somebody will ask me like so why do you do what you do? And I believe that I come here on turning a moment into a movement because it is important for us to understand that the solution, all the answers, that they, they happen within us, within us individually, within us collectively. Right. We have the answers, we have the tools, and it's up to us to come together and take action and, and know how to take action and get educated. I remember Malcolm X, um, and I've said this before, that when they asked him if you had a chance to do it again, what would you do if you had to do your life over again? And he said, I would educate before I organize. Yeah. And I believe that this platform is a platform for 
education. And I'm all about education and empowering and uplifting others. And um, even as with my own company, to, um, not turning a moment to a movement, but that, that's always on my mind. <laughs> the choice zone, where as a life coach, I help you get in your zone and become empowered. And along with that, I sit on the board with Michigan Coalition of Human Rights. I am the Michigan Chair for G100 Oneness and Wisdom Women. And so if you're interested in any of these things, look, get in touch with me. And I always, always will lift up TLC where I minister and am proud to have been there um, for a very long, over 20 years now. So I just thank God for each and every one of you who join us here every week. And it's important to me, it's important for us all. So Jay, I'm, I'm excited about this conversation. And what a tribute to uh, to the person, the, the voice of Detroit, um, as she took, you know, that, that takes courage. Yes. To, and to report, you know, because look, today's reporters, today's uh, journalists, a lot of them don't take chances. You know, and yeah, and it's, sometimes it is, it's it could be life threatening, right? And sometimes mm -hmm. they run with the narrative, and what what so they're telling someone they're else's, telling story. Someone else's story. And, and so, so I'm so I'm excited about Diane being, about here, being because here because she stands up. I remember seeing I her on the. The um, Detroit Real Brief um, video, and I was amazed at all the information that she gave out. Some stuff I didn't even know that I went back and read. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's powerful, powerful. Yes. So I'm excited about this conversation. I see, um, Attorney Mac. Hi, hi. Well, hello. Do you hear the echo, J Love? A little bit, not much. The reason I'm asking is the power went out where I'm at and it just came on, and I'm on my cell phone instead of my laptop using um um um, um what you call it? Um oh the the one that uh used to be explored, Microsoft Edge, Microsoft Edge. So if it's a feedback, it's because I'm on the old Chrome system. So um, I can switch to the other laptop now that I have power, but it'll take me a while to boot it up. You're fine, Attorney Matt. Well, okay. Well, in that case, then we we can proceed. So, okay. hello, 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 Jay Love, hello, Reverend Tia. <laughs> okay. yeah, Reverend Tia, I gotta say this. I'm 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 always asking Jay Love not to yield the pressure to kick me off the show. See, she 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 don't tell me. I know they want me off. I know they do. I know they do. But <laughs> Jay Love been holding her ground so far. So um, I'm I'm gonna try at least at least one other one other show. Hopefully, many more. Is that okay, Jay Love? Okay. You're fine, Attorney Mac. Okay, look, look, Jay Love, you and Reverend Tia, you know what I'm fitting to say. You know what I'm fitting to say. Attention, all people listening. 
Mr. and Mrs. America, all ships at sea, silence, important announcement coming. If you find yourself on Trouble Boulevard, followed by the police, the police, the popo, push, drag, tow, haul, caravan, that hoopty to Mac Street. Mac Street. Park in my virtual underground garage. When there, call the Freedom Line, 734-239-3118. The Freedom Line, 734-239-3118. The Freedom Line, 734-239-3118. HMACLaw.com is your hookup. HMACLaw.com is your hookup. HMACLaw.com is your hookup. And J-Love, in order to give people opportunity to write down this important information, excuse me for about 20 seconds while I do the boogaloo. Okay, J-Love, I think that's about time. So J-Love, I want you to know you darn straight I endorse this announcement. Brought to you by Dr. Hugo J. Matt, Esquire, P30997, the one true king of Russia, <laughs> Scotland, and Harlem. I love you. You know, Attorney Matt, I'm, I'm so happy. <laughs> you make us laugh every week. <laughs> Sometimes you got to have something. Thank you, Attorney Matt. That's right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I guess um, Trisha and Ali is running late. I know every a lot of people. I think Trisha Power was out as well. So we're gonna proceed. If they pop in, I'll bring them in. But um, I talked to Edward, and he hasn't. Um, he's not here. But I wanna. He's he did a video, and I wanna play this video because. What people don't understand when you wrongfully convict someone or you over sentence someone, they don't understand what that feels like to the person and also to the family. So when I saw this video that Edward did for Safe and Just Michigan, I called him like, can we show this? Because I really want to get this across. And so for the viewers, you will really... Um, you can feel what's going on. So I'm going to put that on right now. I go by the name of Baraka um, as opposed to my um, um, family name, which is Edward Sanders. I'm very proud of my family name. Um, the name Baraka um, signify a change, a rebirth in my life. It means blessings. My life is full of blessings in spite of um, some of the serious mistakes I have made in the past. Um, I am 64 years old, will be 65 in January. I spent 43 and a half years in Michigan prison. Um, I went to prison in 1975, and I returned home in 2017 in July. Um, I was, it was just before I went in, just after my 17th birthday and came home 
just before my 60th birthday. When my mother and father separated, we moved over off of 12th Street. We were living on 12th Street at the time of the 1967 riot. Um, um, at that time, I used to go to school with Aretha's two sons, uh, um, Edward and, uh, um, and um, the other kid that's named after his father, um, Reverend Franklin. We took and went to Thurkle Elementary together. I can remember at lunchtime, we would take and go over to their grandfather's house and have lunch in the backyard. We would take and go down in the basement and we used to take and go down there and take and play on their instruments and um, take and have our lunch and so forth. And there were, you know, and his, his grandfather's church was literally down the street from where we lived at on Philadelphia. And one of her sons, uh, um, I shared the same name. My name is Edward. His name was Edward. And there was another kid named Edward that the three of us or the four of us used to take and um, hang out together. And that kid got raped. He got kidnapped, um, raped and murdered with another child. And they found both of these children dead. And I can remember how hurt all of us was there. We all feel that there was a sense of death and there was a lot of hurt and pain in that neighborhood. And then um, it's obvious the pain that followed that um, on 12th Street with the riot. And the riot happened right on our doorstep. You know, um, everyone knew someone that was killed there in Detroit. The reality of that is today, the marks there on 12th Street is still evident today as it was in 1967. I grew up in that neighborhood. Um, I, it, it, it has left the impression on me. Even though I maintain my innocence today, I never told, I was convicted not as a principal, as a assessor. You know, I was said to have took and told someone to commit an act, okay? And I, I never done that, I never done that. When the police interrogated me, they say, we know that you haven't killed anybody, but we know that you know who did. And in my be belligerence, in my youth, I became belligerent with the law enforcement. And they promised me, we'll make sure you do a whole lot of time. And they done just that. They done just that out of my belligerence to them. What it means to commit a crime as a youth or to commit wrong as a youth, it means that you, one day you will grow out of that folly. You will grow out of that spontaneous behavior of being thoughtless to a responsible person. That type of sentence will tell you that society, everyone that you live with here on this earth is incapable of forgiving you. Everyone on this earth is incapable of forgiving you. That's what that sentence means. They witness people's going from being, having their youth to taking and watching them grow old in prison and die. And then eventually they become that, but they only do it after having been in prison sometimes as many as 50 plus years. I apologize. <clears throat> This is my lived experience. This isn't something that I read about. This is something that I have lived and it's not easy. <clears throat> when I went to the parole board for the first time after I served something like maybe seven and a half years, 
the parole board member said to me, there's nothing in this file that says you did anything more than the prosecutor's witness other than the fact that you didn't testify, you didn't cooperate. And he said, that's the only evidence I got that you hear in prison. He said, you give me two years, ticket free, and I give you my word. I will personally request the governor to commute your sentence. Well, the MDOC changed this policy and said life means life again, the act and the behavior and not being able to forgive. But I still hold myself accountable and responsible for having a firearm in that car the night the, the gentleman got killed. I also hold myself accountable for having left the scene of an argument and went around a corner and allowed that firearm to be taken out the trunk of the car that I was operating. I hold myself accountable for going back to that scene. I hold myself accountable for allowing one of those youths in the car to handle that gun, knowing that I and every other youth in that car had been intoxicated and that there had been a previous argument between the occupants of the vehicle and the individual that was killed. I hold myself responsible for that. And when I was in prison, I became aware of the harm that I had did. So I became, while I was in prison, just like I was a game leader on the street, I became a leader in prison, but I became a different kind of leader. And I remind you, I was only a game leader for a few years, but I was a leader among my peers in prison for decades, for decades. I took and taught law classes, after I taught myself, after I took advantage of taking and going to paralegal courses at Jackson Community College, and after I took and learned from other fellow inmates things about law, I began to take and put my own proposal in to administrators and ask the prison administrators for the opportunity to be able to take and teach my fellow inmates. At the Mound Correctional Facility, I got an opportunity to do that. And one of the significant or most significant things as far as I'm concerned that the U.S. Supreme Court said is that most of the children that were sentenced to mandatory life in prison without the possibility of parole are actually innocent of those sentences, not the crime, but the sentence. At the time of the U.S. Supreme Court decision, there was almost 3,000 children in this nation's prison. And we're only talking about those who were under 18. Um, since I've been home, I took and got into grad school at the University of Michigan School of Social Work. I'm now a graduate. And the place where I did my um, field work, which was the Detroit Justice Center, very dynamic um, law firm, movement attorneys, um, I am now um, an extern there and a member of the board of directory. And I'm very proud and um, grateful um, for that opportunity. This interview, um, understanding is in support of um, pending legislation to abolish um, the possibility of even sentencing a child to life in prison without the possibility of parole. I hope to take and see this legislation passed here in my state, Michigan, so that we are no longer um, an outliner among the other states. There are 25 states presently that prohibit the sentencing a child to life in prison without the possibility of parole. 
we we now see that there is support, you know, bipartisan support for the legislation. Um, um, Safe and Just Michigan has played a very significant role to take in, you know, like they do in the case of most of the grassroots organizations here in Michigan. Um, when we come up with policy ideas and so forth, they put it together um, in, in terms of how it can be presented to lawmakers. Um, and they take in, um, walk us through the, the halls of, of um, the state legislative house and introduce us to lawmakers. Um, they brief us on who to talk to, where to go, et cetera. And so we are very much um, assisted in Lansing by Safe and Just Michigan, and we're very thankful for that. Um, remind you that 25 other states have already did what we asked in Michigan to do. When a child show that kind of harm, is because it's only been entered into the child because no child is born bad. No child is born bad. No matter what you attribute, what accusation, whether it is valid or invalid, no child is born bad that you attribute to the parent. No child is born bad. If, if, if there's something in the child, it absorbed it once it came into this environment. And that's our responsibility. That's our collective responsibility. And taking and putting that away is not resolving the issue. It's only hiding the issue. It's only allowing it to fester. Prison is not the answer to everything. And we live in a democracy. It's definitely not the answer in a democracy. A democracy is a place where we should value freedom at all costs. We should value freedom. We need all of us to begin to advocate to each other, to be able to give each other grace, to be able to give each other a sense of mercy and forgiveness, even on your worst day, even on your worst day. Learn to forgive, even on your worst day. Thank you. Gravity, uh, you know, and even though I know the story, I just thank God for him. Mm -hmm. No one can know what that actually feels like. Right. No one can know how it feels to not be forgiven and to even when you didn't do what they said you did yeah and um you know at some point i i just wonder you know we just had a, like was it yesterday the day of empathy and, and we have all these days and these times and these celebrations and these holidays and and we can and i just wonder at what point will we get it right you know <laughs> what is empathy really look like what does compassion really look like what does love thy neighbor really look like what does that do you really exemplify that yes and um you know people don't really understand unless you know somebody unless it's close to you you know i i just had a call today and uh, i have a family member who was convicted as a youth and he went to get a job um, after experiencing an illness and recovering from the illness and went to get a job. And I was so glad he went out there and, and somebody offered him a position and 
after 37 years. It came up when he was 17 and he committed a crime and then they could not offer him the position. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know what it's going to take for lawmakers and, and um, I, I just, I know I have faith that right now we are making change and we cannot stop and we have to write our lawmakers we have to be vigilant. Yes. It's it's not fair and it's it's dehumanizing. Yes. I'm going to bring in Diane. Bring in Diane. Greetings. Greetings. Hello, uh, Jay and Reverend uh, Little John Taylor. I'm very honored to be here today. Yes, we're so happy yes. you're here. Introduce yourself yes. and tell everyone, tell everyone what it is that you do. Okay, I'm uh, the editor of an online newspaper called Voice of Detroit, which has been publishing since uh, the last 12 years. Previous to that, I was a reporter, investigative reporter for the Michigan Citizen newspaper, which people may remember as a Black-owned newspaper that was very militant here in the city of Detroit. It uh, ceased operations in 2014. But predominantly, I covered a lot of uh, stories related to both police and the prison nation, the police state and the prison nation, which is right now what I'm actually devoting um, the Voice of Detroit to. Originally, it was a more general issue paper, but um, I've been, uh, I've felt it was important to focus on those two areas because I haven't been able to cover everything. But this is enough, <laughs> covering mass incarceration and these wrongful convictions and uh, the police state that we live in. So yes. people can contact uh, us at the, the newspaper is online at HTTPS, voiceofdetroit.net. So that's how people can write. Thank you. Yes. That's how people can access it. And uh, we have numerous stories on there now. People have been wrongfully convicted. So when you hear people in our city say it's getting better, things are changing, what do, what do you think when you hear that? Getting better in the city or in the, in the country <laughs> or the world? <laughs> in Detroit, in regards oh, to no. the police and Detroit police. Oh, no. No, that is not the case. I was born and raised in Detroit, and I've only just moved to Southfield a couple of years ago, but I was in Detroit all my life, and uh, we were fighting. I was in the union for AFSCME um, when we were fighting the city of Detroit, um, drive to privatize the entire city, which has been done now as a result of the bankruptcy, threw people out of city workers out of their jobs, and uh, city services were basically totally demolished. We don't even have the water department anymore. And uh, I spent a long time working for the city fighting that, as well as other issues through the years. So I actually started off active after the Attica Rebellion in 1971. And that's why I'm still fighting on this area of prisons now. So yeah, with the um, wrongful convictions, um, I we see exonerees coming home and 
people being exonerated and some people just, you know, like Gerard, they just, you know, after their sentence, they're, you know, released. Some people will never be um, exonerated. And when we talk about wrongful convictions, we there's more. I mean, even some misdemeanors are sometimes wrongful convictions and yes. so, that we don't even discuss. We don't even discuss those, you know, because they're, you know, people think it's just a misdemeanor, you know, but it's any day in jail. One day in jail for some you didn't do is one day too many. Yes, that's true. Go ahead, in Diane. Okay, well, in Detroit, um, well, just to, maybe we should get to the topic of the story that I just Yeah, did. we can start talking um, about it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Actually, Carl Hubbard uh, tried to call a couple of times, uh, so he's supposed to be calling back, and I want to put him on as soon as he does. Okay. But uh, his story is a tremendous story of perseverance in the face of overwhelming odds as somebody that's been incarcerated for 31 years for life, life without parole, which is something I'm categorically against. That's we're the only country in the world that actually sentences people to die in prison. Other countries have much lesser sentences. And, uh, you know, we have so many people in the prisons in Michigan. Actually, in the area of the 90s, the 1990s, which is when Carl was convicted in 1992, and also Andre Nelson, whose case was on the show uh, back in November on, on your show, Jay, mm -hmm. uh, he was convicted in 1993. Uh, one of the private investigators who's active with the movement against the wrongful conviction, Scott Lewis, he estimates that during that period in Wayne County, 80% uh, of the people who were convicted were actually wrongfully convicted. And this is a man that used to be a newspaper reporter and has done professional work for a long time now, working with prisoners and uh, tracking down evidence to support their wrongful conviction claims. So that's just a background for what's been happening in the city of Detroit. It's outrageous and it still goes on. It has not stopped. We have a prosecutor, Kim Worthy here, that has refused to prosecute any of the police or the prosecutors involved in these wrongful convictions. Still to this day refuses to do that. In Carl Hubbard's case, uh, he was the central police officer involved in framing him was also the one involved in framing Andre Nelson, who was Joanne Kinney. Joanne Kinney has been on the prosecutor's staff since uh, she left the police department back in 2006. Now, they tell me she's not got anything to do with the conviction integrity unit. However, the judge that sentenced Carl to life after a three-day trial, which was a joke, because uh, it was based totally on a coerced statement from a guy that recanted it on the first day of trial, and they arrested him on the stand and held him in the Wayne County Jail for uh, two days, threatening him that he, they were going to send him back to prison, that they'd charge him with the murder that they charged Carl with and various other uh, threats. In fact, that's I think that's him calling now. Hold on a minute. Okay. Let me see. I'm going to bring Yolanda Nelson in. That's Andre's sister. 
Okay. Can you hear this okay? Thank you for yes. Your hey, Carl. Hey, hello. Yeah, yeah, you can talk now. Uh, you're on the show now. Hello, Carl. Hey, how you doing? I'm great. Uh, Thank you for that. I'm, Thank I'm, you for the to be Yeah, so I'm glad you're on. Your sister is watching. Um, I want you to tell us your story. My story? Yes. Well, I can just start off with like when I woke up that day, you know, everything seemed just perfect, then it just turned to a nightmare overnight. And I turned when I, when I met when I came in, I just pulled up to the house, came in, told my mother I was upstairs using the bathroom. But what they're not telling you, when I came down the stairs, before I came in the house, before they got in the house, they already had pulled guns out. and was taking the guns towards the window, telling my mother not to move. But then she told them that she had to move to open the door. So when they wrote it up like she gave permission to come in there, that was a lie right there. So when I come down the stairs, I come down the stairs, I'm looking at them, I'm asking them what's going on. They showed a picture of me, asked me my name, I told them my name from there. They put handcuffs on him. My mother asked him, it was I under arrest. They told him, no, we just taking him downtown, questioning on armed robbery. I'm like, armed robbery? She like, you don't run around and stick nobody up. So he left, got in the car. Then I asked my, asked, my, asked my wife at that time and my brother Maurice, asked him, can they follow them? So we went down, they said, yes, they followed us downtown. But once we got down, there was a whole different story to him. They went to Sergeant Kennedy, went to question me, asked me questions. I asked her for a lawyer. I told her I need to talk to a lawyer in my family. She told me I wasn't under arrest. She said, I just want to ask you some questions. She said, I got some. She said, I got six bodies. I got no answer for them to go. So I'm like, well, what they got to do with me? She said, I just want to ask you some questions, and I'll let you go. I said, I'm not, I asked her again, was I under arrest? She said, no, you wouldn't. But she told me to read my rights, and I couldn't. So when I started reading them, she seen I couldn't read them back. But she stopped me. She said, you can't read. And I looked at her, like, okay. Then she said, she said, she just took them. After that, she said, just put your initials right here. I'm going to ask you a few questions. That's it. And all the questions she asked me, so I said, okay, no, 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 no. That's basically what I said. Said no to every guy because she said, I'm gonna let you go. But when I got ready to get up, I asked, Can I leave? She said, No. I asked, Can I talk to my family? Call my family, Mr. Fox. She said, No. The next time, I know they took me upstairs. I stayed up there for like, picked me up Tuesday. I didn't see nobody again till like Thursday. And when she brought me down there Thursday, they got Lieutenant Peterson there. Lieutenant Peterson is saying, he said, when he said, he said, first, first, yeah, he said, you scurvy. I got calls calling you, you scurvy, you a bully in the neighborhood, you this and that, you a liar, this and that. I'm like, what? Uh, Kenzie, like, yeah, you lied to us. I got two officers that sent you on the scene. I said, who are you talking about turning the car? I said, you never asked me that. If you would have asked me that, you would. I would have told you, I would hope they were turning the car right after everything happened. I came up, me and my friend, we walked up, 
seen the lights every day. He said, let's walk over here. Walked over there. We looked at everything. Carter was standing there. He's like, what's up, though? What's up? I sat down in the police car. They asked him what's going on, what happened. They said the guy got his brain going coming out the crack house. That's what they told him. I said, all right, was it the guy from the neighborhood or what? He said, no, we don't know. But then what they ain't saying in the record, that he had me under surveillance. Now, this guy, they said, Rondell Penn booked him selling drugs for me for two years. But now, here go to this thing, the officer, first officer on the scene, then she got there and she seen the body and everything. Turner and Carter was the second patrol car there. And when Turner and Carter walk up, they look at the body. Now, this guy, y'all say, y'all got me under surveillance and everything for the last two years. Now, y'all say this guy booked him selling drugs for me. For the last two years, you mean so the officer that got me under surveillance? Look at the guy on the ground. You don't identify him being with me that you see folks have me on surveillance for the last two years. Number that number that comes out in the courtroom. And I sat down there, and when I take me up, take me downtown, and I'm talking to, and I talk to her, she wouldn't let me see nobody. They take me. She tells me this on the last time Kennedy talked to me. She say, uh. He said, look, ghost, I'm going to tell you this. I'm pretty going gray and max. I said, go on gray and max. He said, look, if I can get somebody to put you between old oh boy between 8.30 and 9 o'clock, I'm going to put you to wait for the rest of your life. If I can't get nobody to put you with him, I'm going to let you go. I said, why would you go on gray and max? You want to talk about like you on gray and max. So why would you even go out there? He said, I'll be back. At, I'll be back. i get up at 3 or 4. That Friday, I wake up, they book it, take me in front of the judge. After that, everything else just seemed like downhill. Every time I looked at my lawyer, every time I talked to Charles about the case, he telling me it's looking good. But then he tells me he got a relationship with James Gonzalez. James Gonzalez beat him one time, he beat him. And I'm telling him I wanted to stay in front of Roberson. He tells me don't stay in front of Roberson because Roberson's going to send me to prison. So he said he's gonna get another judge. So during that process, during that process, they do a blind draw and everything. I tell him I want evidence you hearing and everything. He tells me, you got evidence you hearing, we got a judge. He said evidence you hearing, but we're going from the Philippines. Then he tells me, um, my judge is still with this too. When I get ready to go to trial, I'm going ready to pick my jury. I see it's half the way. He tell me the way that, because he said Curtis Collins is in the front. He's about to draw his whole testimony. He said, don't use you taking the jury trial because Kurt coming to withdraw his whole testimony. That's why I took, that's why I turned around and took the bitch trial. And everything. But once everything else came out, everything else going to trial, I seen when Kurt withdraw his testimony, everything tells the truth, and they turn around. I don't know what they do to him after that. He goes, they take you to the um, 1300. Two days later, I'm like, we're walking. I mean, I, I go to the recess, and this officer asked me, uh, he said, the public seems like he's going home. I said, no, you can't see that, because now Hathaway's in the elevator with us. The officer's name was Zimmerman, uh, Zimmerman, something like that. He say that, and I said, no, you can look for homicide to do throw a monkey wrench in the guy. So 
get down there, we come back up. The trial just went totally a whole different way. Now since then, I've been trying to get gather evidence, get things together, writing writing courts, asking them for certain evidence, certain proof of things. I never got a discovery. I'm asking for the discovery. I'm asking for the lien sheet. I'm asking about the perjury charges. I'm asking for everything. But at the same time, I ain't got no money. And I ain't got no, my family ain't got no money. So I'm trying to do best I can do. Then, when it comes down to it, when she write on my name, she write on that said, I went to college in the seventh grade. She told me, too, like I told her, I said, I fucked the seventh grade. I fucked the second grade. I fucked the eighth grade. I went to them twice. I've been shot in the head twice. I've been shot in the mouth and shot in the back. So she knew all this in my back. He touched my leg. So I, when I told her, when I read the quick report, talking about I got, I went to, uh, got my GED. No, I didn't get my GED to 2007. I just recently got my GED. I couldn't read or write when I came to prison. I learned how to read and write while I was up here. That's when I started getting off into studying law, trying to find my best way home. And everything else, it just seemed like it came together slowly but surely. I met certain people out the neighborhood, I mean, people I ain't never seen, never knew about nothing. And then when I told him, when I told Giles at the pre exam, I told him, he asked me, did I know Tony Smith when he brought the statement to me? I told him, I don't know this guy. This guy is lying. I never went to the store. I've never been on the store in Grand Bank. I said that night I've never been in that store. But when you look at the statement, what they used on the 23rd to get proper calls to bond me over, to get the warrant and everything, it was Curtis Collins' statement. But Richard Iverson had typed the statement all the way up. But he also had placed me, Ronnell Penn, Kurt, Curtis Collins, and Andrew Smith. We all in the store at the same time. So I started realizing that everything started in the store. Not, it was the building block on the whole case. So when it started there, I started looking for like, well, damn, where was the store owner's name at? So I jumped off my bunk. I'm watching, I'm, I jumped up on my bunk. I'm looking around at the TV and it was called the dumbest criminal. They just broke in the store and fell through the roof. They fell through the roof and had a video camera of everything. So that's why I look for the store owner's name. I'm looking for the store owner's name and I couldn't find it on the witness list. And I knew by studying law now that they name should have been on the witness list and I had never been in the store. And I kept telling my lawyer I had never been there. But I also knew that Sergeant Kennedy had got all her evidence off the corner of Gray and Mac. But ain't nobody never went in the store and asked the store owners was I ever there in their store at that moment in time. And when I did reach out, another uh, brother reached reaching into me named Raymond Williams. He wrote me when he got out of the federal joint. He wrote me and told me, he was like, I'm going to help you get out and everything. I said, man, I need you to find the store on this one. I need to find them and who they is, who was working that night and everything. That's what got the ball really turning for me and my, turning me around because I'm looking for the store owners. I'm like, Ain't nobody never questioned them. They're not on the prosecutor witness list at all. Mr. Lucky name is not even on the prosecutor witness name. 
these we just not with us. Then when I looked at then when I looked at the residue thing, when they looked like said so they went grabbed everybody off the house, Peter Baker's house, and took them all downtown. I'm looking at the statement, there's seven people in there. Do you not know that when they took the gun residue test, they only took the gun residue test of two people that was in the house? There was other five people in the house. They didn't get no residue test. Turn around, the other two guys, they they come after the scene, and one of them testified against me. And they were trying to get him to say that they kept saying there was a white jeep involved in everything white jeep involved in the case. They kept trying to place me in the white jeep. They kept asking, did I own the white jeep? I'm like, I never owned the white jeep. I owned a pool show. And it was a snowstorm that night. Cars was all snowed in. So it wasn't no way. I, I never had, but when they couldn't put me in the truck, with, in the white jeep or in the truck or a white car or whatever, they couldn't, they left that theory alone. Then when they come back again, I'm looking at them like, okay, now you, this guy that said this, y'all took them down there, ain't no residue. But then when I get um, uh, my police homicide file, the miscellaneous file, that's when everything else starts to kicking around. We're going to start opening up more for me. Now I find about the subpoena that um, James Gonzalez. He issued a subpoena in February the 11th, 92. He did it. He gave it to Sergeant Kennedy. Tell Sergeant Kennedy to serve the checker cab company because he needs the checker cab records to collaborate Curtis College testimony. This is 2016. I find this out. But now, my lawyer... You have uh, one minute remaining. I ain't said nothing. Hey, nobody says nothing about this cab until the judge says something about it. But Kirchka said that he left the scene in the cab after everything's likely supposed to happen. So when I get that, I write Giles, I write the court, I write the prosecutor, I write everybody. I wrote my lawyers and everybody else. Have they ever seen it? But I never got the discovery of it. So I'm looking for the resources of it and everything, but I couldn't get nothing. So once I seen that, I said, okay, then y'all have withheld some more evidence here. Because there's no way that no care company was running that. There wasn't no, wasn't no buses running because it was a snowstorm that night. Wasn't no cabs running or nothing. So he knew this in March, by March the 20th of 92. He knew this, but we still went to trial. He get the discovery at that time. So my lawyer, I'm looking, I put the alibi defense in with Thank you for using GTL. Well, Jay and all the audience, I am just absolutely blown away by this story. I never heard Carl's blow-by-blow -blow accounting of what happened when he was arrested. And when he's saying that he couldn't even read when he went into prison, that man has filed very, not just intelligent, lawyerly briefs over the years. The reason he, where he's at right now, uh, the reason he's at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals 
is that a result is a result of a habeas uh, petition that he filed, which I have a copy of uh, on the website, and uh, it's extremely detailed, all sorts of legal references, no, completely, absolutely grammatically in spelling everything absolutely correct well written this man has been fighting for his life for all these 31 years and he nearly lost it during the time of the covid in the prisons he was extremely ill i was going back you know i was talking with him back and forth I contacted the prison he went to the he was in the hospital he was close to death this man was close to death and uh, now, finally, 31 years later, he's got a chance in this court system that generally just denies people any kind of rights to survive mm -hmm. from the you know from the black community if you're poor, uh, etc. He, by his own efforts, has made it to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now the habeas petition that he wrote was uh, ruled on by the <coughs> district court judge because uh, he denied it because it had all sorts of timeliness issues in it. But he granted him a certificate of appealability on the basis of innocence. And that is what will be argued in the Sixth Circuit Court, his actual innocence claim, which is tremendous to see that now. I'm, I'm just kind of shaking right now to, to think about the road that he's traveled all through this time. And like other men in prison, men and women in prison, the strength that they exhibit, the development of themselves while they've been in prison, the people need to be, they need to be home. They need to be contributing to their communities. They need to be taking care of their families. They need to be making a whole difference. If if uh, all the wrongfully convicted people and people that are in prison now uh, for too many years, you know, ridiculous amounts of time, we have um, one, uh, in fact, the other story that's on the top of my website right now is about Ricky Rimmer who many people that are in prison now know who he is. His mother just died, Lovey Rimmer. And uh, there's a, uh, the story on top of Carl's is the story about uh, uh, her funeral arrangements. I'd like to just quickly tell people where it's gonna be because people may know her that are listening. may know, likely know Ricky. He's known throughout the prison system because he fought his wrongful conviction and he's still in there. And uh, he was framed by uh, two by two officer two police officers. One of them uh, was James Harris, who was convicted in in the nineteen ninety one of smuggling drugs in an FBI sting. He agreed to smuggle drugs into the city of Detroit. Uh, he what what happened with Ricky? was he asked Ricky, he was smuggling drugs all through the time he was with the, with the uh, Detroit Police Department. Early on, Ricky was convicted in 1975. And uh, he told him, 
that he was going to get him if he didn't uh, let him in on his group because Ricky had a group at the time. They call it a gang, but whatever. You know, they call every group of young black guys gangs. But uh, he told him if he didn't allow, if he didn't let them into let his people into the drug trafficking, that he was gonna he was gonna deal with him. And what Ricky said was, "Yeah, he did. He not only he didn't kill me, but he he took away my life. Senate, he's been in prison forty six years now, and uh, so the uh, funeral for his mother." is uh, visitation this Sunday at Cantrell Funeral Home on Kelly Road in East Point. That must be the old Cantrell from Math, uh, from 12 to 4. And the family hour is uh, at Miracle of Faith Ministries in East Point, Michigan. Uh, the next day at 12.30 p.m., funeral at 1 o'clock. And people can go on my website and see all those details. But... Um, I, you know, the, the, the stories of people that have struggled and I've, I've known many people whose stories I've covered from the prison system, you know, it's a continuation really of the Attica rebellion of 1971. They slaughtered as, as you know, they slaughtered the prisoners, governor Nelson Rockefeller, and the whole system just slaughtered these men who were heroes standing up for their rights as human beings. And people are still battling. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. why, you know, the voice of Detroit now is, is devoted to dealing with those issues about the prisons and the police. So as you can see, the police were integrally involved in, uh, in uh, Carl Hubbard's frame up the sergeant that he's talking about is Sergeant Joanne Kenny, the same one that framed up uh, Andre Lee Nelson, who's the mm -hmm. brother of Yolanda that's here. Mm -hmm. Maybe she can talk more about that. But what struck me, I did not know that Carl also could not read when he when he went to prison. He could not read. And the level that he's risen to at this point and the fact that he survived through almost dying from COVID in there and still was filing all his briefs. Just astonishing. A real tribute to uh, the people that are in prison that need their freedom. So if Yolanda wants to talk yeah, about her brother. Yolanda, I, when he was, uh, and Diane, when um, Kyle was talking and when he's mentioned that, I just thought, this lady is looking for the same type of people because that was the a big part of our conversation with Yolanda about Andre. He couldn't read. He couldn't write. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Yolanda. Yolanda? She can't hear me. Well, I see that Rick, I mean, Kyle's sister is here, Tammy. Can you come on the mic? Let me unmute you. Okay. Oh, there you go. I think I, hello. <laughs> Hi, Hi, everyone. Hi. How are you today? Um, uh, emotional. Yeah. <laughs> Just hearing his voice and hearing him and, and reliving 
everything that uh, we've been through. Uh, one of the things that he did not mention was that when the judge sentenced him, the judge sentenced him to 20 to 25, but somewhere in between him being sentenced and him, um, I'm sorry, <laughs> and him we'll going to prison, they changed it to life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just natural life, no end date. And it's like, that's not what the judge said, but that's one of the things that for mysterious reasons, those papers disappear because if, if they stuck by what the judge said, and if he was actually guilty, he's been in there 32 years, you know, he should have been out mm -hmm. from 20 to 25. Right. So, so they, they, yeah, so they, they hid his actual sentences papers, you know, um, Kennedy and the other uh, officer actually sit on the integrity unit. So how can, how can you get justice when the people who, who are wrong, wrongfully putting you in jail is the ones who's supposed to be deciding you getting out? Yeah, yeah. we discussed that when Yolanda was on about mm -hmm. how are you an investigator and right. in the integrity unit. And so Exactly. That's like putting a bank that's like putting a bank robber in, tar in charge of the bank. Right. Know? Right. <laughs> so how they're going to investigate themselves? Right. And, and and they recycle these people. I know I was reading Diane's article. How they just recycle these people. They leave from one place and then they go work in the prosecutor's office. And then we we search for justice through them, through their lens mm -hmm. that is already corrupt or tainted. So um, I know Reverend Tia, um, go ahead with you was talking about the um i saw the uh, i saw the ring of snitches ring of snitches yeah the that ring of uh snitches i was gonna tell ask diane to to talk about that because people you know it's it's just amazing the unwritten rules that go on behind the scenes under the guise of the the uh <laughs> the processes that police go through and so uh, Sergeant Kenny, who Diane was talking about on her in her um, Diane's article, um, she talks about the Moore versus the city of, of Detroit uh, and that the claim that they were legally valid police actions. And they called it the ring of snitches in the 90s. And it, it says that the police whatever the police beliefs were that meant their beliefs alone meant that they had probable cause mm -hmm. exactly. Diane, you want to you want to talk about that because i was you know people don't understand how critical that is in the community yes yeah. and that yeah. whole ring, that ring of snitches was responsible for and it, it's still there it's believe still me there. they still use they snitches still use in the prison in the in, in the wayne county jail and uh locally they and that's across the country actually prosecutor worthy said she doesn't she hasn't used snitches she, since she came in that's a lie she used snitches to put away uh the father and uncle of Iana jones 
the little girl that was killed by the police in uh, 2010, the seven-year-old child that was butchered, murdered by the police as they entered her home with that flashbang grenade. And uh, rather than see, you know, expose what happened there, Kim Worthy went after the father who was in the home, the father and mother and their other little tiny toddlers and uh, other relatives that were in that home staying there because they were poor. And uh, Kim Worthy just, she, Charles Jones fortunately came home after being convicted in the related case that they claim was related in the reason for the raid. But um, I heard from people in the prosecutor's office at the time because I covered that story. If people uh, go on my website and put uh, uh, Iana Jones in the search engine, there's dozens of stories that I did. I covered every single uh, hearing that they held for both in the trial of Joseph Weekly, who, who walked, who never was convicted of anything, but shot that little girl in the head with his gun directly at her temple uh, from the evidence that I saw during those hearings. The media in general uh, just disgracefully condemned and vilified her family. Myrtilla Jones, her grandmother, she fought for many years until she finally passed a few years ago. Unfortunately, she wasn't there to see Charles come home. But that she was one of the most courageous women I've ever met, her and Arnetta Grable. And uh, so just to say that uh, something has to be done about this is a drastic situation that we're dealing with in the city of Detroit, the county of Wayne. But of course, it's focused largely on the city of Detroit because of the poor black population that remains here. And uh, it's just, you know, the people, there needs to be an uprising, really. The police have continued to kill people, as we saw with them shooting the young man that uh, was in a mental, uh, a, in mental distress. Uh, the young woman after that, who they shot at her mother's home with her two children there, they're continuing to kill people. And the mainstream media refuses to cover it and follow up on it because they want people to have the idea that James White is the salvation of the Detroit Police Department. They're the same. They go all the way back to um, Ricky Rimmer in 1975. It's never changed. It's still going on in this system. Never changed. The more I reported on stories about the police during the years I was with the Michigan Citizen and finding out about cases like Ricky Rimmer's, it's never changed. Uh, James Harris, who framed up Ricky Rimmer, was on Coleman, Coleman was on stress. He was a black cop that was part of stress. And uh, after Coleman Young took office, uh, after, based on getting rid of stress, he supposedly got rid of stress, he hired James Harris for his security detail. He was on security detail with Coleman Young for years before he finally got, uh, you know, arrested in, by federal uh, officials and sent to prison for 30 years. He got out after 20 years. He's still around. And um, 
the other cop that was involved in framing up Ricky was involved in a horrendous, um, I don't know if people are old enough to remember, the Veterans Memorial Incident in 1969, where cops were uh, having a, the uh, police officers' wives were having a party in one of the upper floors of the Veterans Memorial, and uh, or on the first floor, I think, and there was a church group of youth having an event farther up, and they because the bathrooms weren't in good shape, they ended up using the same bathrooms. The police came out uh, threatening, chasing the black youth with guns, threatening to kill them. They were drunk, the police, but they were also stone racists. And uh, one of those cops that was actually charged in that case and convicted because he was sent to a white uh, suburb of Lansing, uh, exonerated by an all-white jury. Uh, he was uh, one of the ones involved in, in oh, who was the chief investigating officer in, in uh, Ricky Rimmer's case. The vision of what has gone on in this city, in Detroit, is just incredible incredibly evil evil is all i can call it how people can have the capacity to do what they do to people like carl like andre and there's hundreds more like them you know scott lewis said that he believes in total there's 30 percent of people in the michigan mdoc that are innocent from what he's seen from his researches and the work he's done. And 90% in Wayne County in the 90s. It's just incredible. This is not, we're, we're living in a police state and it's a prison nation, mass incarceration, and it's not changing. There's a there's movements going on and I congratulate, you know, it's wonderful that the movements are going on but people should be aware of what a serious situation we remain in. Yes. You know, I agree with you because even when I was down with Gerard, that was three, four years, four years ago almost. And a lawyer told me that the, that these um, police officers that was on this case were known liars mm -hmm. and that the judges down there knew about how that they lie. And I was like, blown away, you know, blown away. And I said, and they continue to work and they continue to come down here and have cases. He said, yes. And so I it's that's why we come here because I really want people to understand that this could happen to anybody. They lie just, and they know that they're lying, but as long as they feel like they gave you a trial, Hey, we did what we supposed to do on our end. And so you're fighting the whole state, innocent person, poor person, the whole state of Michigan. How can you compete, compete with a liar and the state of Michigan? It's, you can't. And so when you said 80 and 90% of people in the 90s, it gave me chills. Because if it's 80 and 90% in the 90s, what is it now? What is it now? It hasn't stopped. They're just yeah. getting better with it. And the, and people know about it. And you're right. Until we, you know, come together and do something, until there is, and 
a uprise or we all stand together and say no more is the cycle going to continue and so that's why we have to continue to educate we have to continue to talk to people and tell these stories because people don't believe it i know when it happened to me people said hey we should he had to do something the police just don't you know arrest people you know they do <laughs> they do go ahead rabbitier I tell you, you know, uh, Jay, I think, and everyone here, I'm, I'm just so glad that everyone is here, Diane and Tammy and and Nelson's oh, sister, uh, the other Nelson, I'm going to call her. You know, I just, it's time that everybody is uncomfortable. See, we can no longer stay in a state of being comfortable where we are because comfortable is it's it's actually a lie it, it's not reality see you're comfortable until it comes to your face to face with it until it's your loved one until it's somebody that you know then you're you're comfortable until then and then you become uncomfortable because now they have gotten somebody wrongfully accused and and this is this is my heart now now i'm uncomfortable no longer can we wait for for that to happen it's time for us to say okay we're uncomfortable but now who really needs to be uncomfortable the people who are doing this need to be uncomfortable mm -hmm. we need to make them uncomfortable see they they continue to do what they do because they're comfortable in doing what they do because they don't have any type of accountability so how do we make them uncomfortable? And this is what is important. That's we why we send them to prison. What'd you say, Diane? I said we send we we can send them to prison for the same types of terms that they consigned our people to prison for. Because what they did were crimes. Crimes. That that police department is rife with criminals. They should be in prison. Yes, yes, they should be. It's time for them to go to prison. It's mm -hmm. time to make them accountable. And we do that when we go to the polls. We do that when we write our representatives. We do that with bills that are coming up. And you know, we're gonna have we're gonna be listing them on on this show that so you know what to write, so you know what to stand for. And we have to do it collectively. Jay and I were just uh yesterday meeting with other activists for a coalition that is going to be happening because we have to come together and stand on everything that matters to us. Mm -hmm. uh, Yolanda? Can you hear me? Yes. Good evening, everyone. <laughs> Hello? Yes, Yolanda. <laughs> I don't have no service. My lights and stuff out, so it's going to be kind of hard, so just bear with me. Okay, yeah, I understand. Um, mine is too, Yolanda. So, did you hear um, Kyle's story and the compare, you know, how it compares to your brother's story? Yeah, yeah, because they had the same offices. Mm -hmm. 
as Sergeant Kenny. Yes. Uh, I see Attorney Max is back. So, Yolanda, can you tell, um, refresh us about um, Andre's story? Yes, my brother Andre Lee Nelson was convicted of, wrongfully convicted of a crime that he did not commit on um, October the 12th, 1993 for armed robbery and a murder. Um, he was nowhere on this side of town, the west side of town. He was on the east side babysitting his daughter while his baby mother went to work. And the baby was I think nine months or a year. Um, she has an auntie that stayed downstairs. They stayed in a two-family flat. And my brother did not drive, did not have no car, no license. And they said that he committed a, a, mur a murder that was September the 14th, 1993. And Sergeant Kenny, actually, they picked him up a whole month later. And when they picked him up, they said that he was charged with a murder and armed robbery. Now, with that said, with, with that being said, my brother was my babysitting. Brother was babysitting he was babysitting he his was daughter. His daughter. And he and had he had they 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 arrested they, him. They arrested him like three days. With no um with no, cookie, uh, right. right. Mm -hmm. No lawyer. No lawyer. He didn't even know the actual law. My brother, when My I say brother, he when I say his name, name, three and years old, three years old, mm. and uh, and uh, he was just wrongfully convicted. Just wrongfully convicted. Just, you know, um, Sergeant um, Kenny pulled out Kenny his, and he signed and it. And he signed it. Go on, and he signed. And he signed. Hmm. And locked and up. Locked up. When he was making the confession, making the confession, he had been in there for he like. Had been in there for like two days, two or three days, two or three days. Three days. And, um, and he said, um, man, he said that man, that Sergeant, I, Sergeant McKinney, McKinney, kept telling him that he did it. That he did it. And he shot this and guy. He shot this guy. This, all my this, brother, my brother, making, making that if he tells them, he said that he, he shot said that he shot this with a different kind of gun. Different kind of gun. Um, um, he wrestled with he him. Wrestled with him. House. Six House. people. Six people. Somebody else got shot. Somebody else got shot. Another bullet left in the house. Left in the house. And nobody and was. Nobody was at the 14th. 14th. Mm. The lady mm. that was the in the that was in the which was a, a bunch was of crap. Mm -hmm. She said, she, said that, no, she knows our family here. Mm -hmm. So she could have so easily said she could easily said, she didn't mm. say that. She didn't say that. Something somebody told somebody told their Knew who my brother knew was. Who my brother was. She said the guy was she brown. The guy was brown. My brother was light skinned. My brother was light He got big ears because that's just how big his ears is. And and you've been knowing us, and you come to my house 
all the time. You, my grandmother used to let you use her asthma machine, you know, because she was getting high. And my grandmama had asthma, too. And she, my grandma used to let her use her asthma machine. So she knew us. She knew our family. And the guy that this saying that, that got killed, he stayed down the street from us. We've been over there on Mendota our whole entire life. So everybody knew everybody over there. So it was her and like six other people in the house. So another girl got shot in the house. You know, it's just a bunch of stuff that was said and a lot of stuff was kept from him. You know, like, I don't think his, his, his trial was fair because they asked the young lady, they was like, well, the only reason you're picking him is because he's the only one sitting here. She was like, yes. And, you know, and they, was, they literally convicted him of that. He never been in that house, in that apartment. I mean, no fingerprints, no nothing, no gun, no nothing. She told his alibi up and said she believed that he was lying. So she told his alibi up. And it's been 30 years. And I'm waiting on my brother to come home. And she works in the integrity or the prosecutor, one of those offices still today. Yeah. And now she's downtown in the integrity. I don't know if she's working actually for the integrity unit, but I know she's down there up on the Kim Worthy. Uh, we sent in his paperwork um, for the um, integrity unit to see if they're going to go on his case and see was it something, was he wrongfully charged? His his um his stuff been down there his his case been down there since what um May of 20, 2020, and still haven't heard anything from them. They no news is good news. Wow, I'm stunned. <laughs> I'm so, stunned. Um, it's a lot, it's a lot going on because like I said, I, you know, I've been trying to put the case together myself. It's obvious. You got all these people, five people, five to six people in the house. Um, this young man was selling drugs. The five people was in the house are crackheads. Now it sounds like this to me. They spent money with this boy, this guy. And when he told them that he can't give them credit. So you got these five people, them five people robbed and killed him. And that's what happened. And, and and nobody never even picked Andre out. They said something about Andre had, I just found this out. They said he have a, they picked my brother out of a lineup on the 18th of September. That's a lie. He wasn't even in the lineup. They used his picture for a lineup. That was some bogus news. They didn't pick him up until September, I mean, October the 12th. They knew where Andre lived at. So if they knew where my brother lived at, why they never picked him up a whole month later? You mean to tell me somebody can get killed in the house? You got people in the house, somebody get killed in the house, not one person go to jail. Another young lady got shot in the house. The guy that came from across the street, spoke, came across the street, shot her. He ain't in jail. There's nobody in jail. I don't understand. I don't yeah. understand how my brother, Andre, go to jail. And when they came to pick him up from my grandmother's house, they said they looking for Andre Lee Tillman. 
My brother's name is Andre Lee Nelson. They arrested him up under Andre Lee Tillman, but used Andre Lee Nelson to lock him up, if that makes sense. Wow. So, uh, Diane, go ahead. Oh, okay, yes. Um, I wanted to make people aware of the fact that Carl and Andre are closely connected in the prison they're at. They, um, in fact, sometimes when Carl calls me, he's had Andre on the line. And uh, he, he's been working with Andre, helping him on his case too. So uh, that's an interesting coincidence. And the fact that uh, it turns out Carl was in the same situation that Andre was in. Uh, also uh, regarding uh, Joanne Kinney, uh, the prosecutor's representative, Maria Miller, claimed when I asked her about uh, Kenny's uh, employment in the prosecutor's office that she's not, she doesn't deal with the CIU, but, and that's in the story I did. But however, that doesn't matter because that prosecutor's office is totally entwined with the CIU. They find out everything that defense attorneys that the uh, people that are seeking uh, justice through the CIU, every document that they give to the CIU is available to the prosecutors. And uh, they, they tell you that when you sign up for the CIU, at, way down in a little small print. Mm -hmm. And uh, so people should beware of the CIU because of that. Now, the CIU claims that... Uh, you know, they were responsible for the exonerations of, what, 38 people now, I, I say, I think. But the thing is, Kim Worthy has never tried to take action against multiple police officers that were responsible for putting those men away. Has never, has refused absolutely to take any action against repeat offenders in her own office that put people away you know, that were the assistant prosecutors in the cases. Uh, Patrick Muscat, for instance, who has been involved in several of the exonerees cases, was the chief prosecutor in those cases. And uh, they told me, oh yeah, well, Pat is still here. When I asked him if he was still on staff, Pat, that's what they call him. It's a den of thieves, it's a den of criminals up in the prosecutor's office as well. And, and they all get graced through um, qualified and absolute immunity. So, well, yeah, that's their cover. Well, the, actually, in the story that I did on, uh, I'm trying to remember which one, there's a uh, federal, um, it's on the Department of Justice website where they talk about really that's being whittled away at the prosecutorial immunity. And uh, I, trying to remember what story I had that in, but it shouldn't be taken for granted that they got immunity. Right. Tammy, do you have something you want to add? Well, other than a pox on DTE, uh, uh -huh. you know, this, this power outage thing, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, and I know, I know people say it's the weather, can't nobody control it. But I'm going to be like Sam Riddle. Why every time I got something important to say, the power go out? I, I'm just saying, Jay Love, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. 
So, 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 so one of the things I want to bring out is, is this, is what the, the young lady said about whittling away at prosecutorial immunity. You know, one way you can whittle away at it is showing that the prosecutor did an act that they knew was illegal, okay, that, that they knew was, was illegal. I mean, I'm working on a case right now trying to the prosecutor knew that the way they the information against this particular defendant was did it did it anyway. A person up going to prison. So it, it's 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 a nuanced argument, but I think the prosecutors have gotten so comfortable, so comfortable now um, with with the way the hierarchy is. First of all, elections have consequences. Okay, and the thing of it is, unless you've got a lot of money and influence behind you. And I know from personal experience, it is next to impossible to run for these offices, okay? Especially somebody with a criminal justice experience like I have. Because, you know, you have so many people, and I have to say this, particularly in our community, yes, it's true. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We are so quick to castigate each other and put each other down, you know, and be like, well, my son ain't never been in trouble. You know, look at her son, he in trouble. Well, maybe your son never been in trouble because he left two minutes before the police got there. See, 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 you, you don't know. You don't know. So um, part of the problem that we have, J. Love, and I know I preach on this all the time, is the self-hate we level against ourselves. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is when we refuse to back righteous candidates because they don't have the money and the name recognition of somebody else. We just saw they ain't nobody. They ain't got no chance to win. Well, guess what? I mean, you had an election a couple of years ago in Wayne County. Um, uh, Victoria Burton Harris ran against Kim Worthy. Okay, so somebody stepped up and tried to run unsuccessfully. But what would have happened if a lot of the people who've got people in the penitentiary would have actually backed her? You know what I'm saying? Would have would have put some money in into that campaign. We might have had a different result. So anyway. The bottom line is I encourage all of you to keep on taking the shot. Keep taking the shot. Maybe a lot of them will be blocked by prosecutorial immunity, but one of us eventually is going to get a shot through. I promise you. I promise you. And that's going to be the beginning of it because the rest of us are going to come in after that. We have to continue to fight. I agree, Attorney Matt. Tammy. Mm -hmm. Do you want to add something? Oh, no. Um, Carl had, had called back and he was on the phone and he was listening. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. so <laughs> I, was, I was telling him who was, who was speaking while, while he was listening. Okay. Uh -huh. Yeah. So but, um, I think one of the one of the other biggest things was um, the judge had already made up his mind as far as how he was going to rule in Carl's case by by him taking a bench trial and by the the prosecution and the defense attorney going and talking and coming up with the agreement that they did. There was no way that he should have been convicted, even when the um, the police went and they did their investigation of the scene. 
from where the store sit, it's like cat a corner to the street. So they went and they did pictures of where the, the scene was to where the store was. And he said, I know that's me on the picture because I took the, you know, because the other officer had took the picture, but it was so far a distance. There was no way that that eyewitness statement should have been taken. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like um, that that that's some of the some of the stuff that, you know, the judge just overlooked and he went with um, what he wanted to do, what he mm -hmm. had preconceived notion of, you know, I got a I got a bone and I'm just going to I'm going to roll with what I feel, mm -hmm. even though all of the evidence goes against what I'm feeling. I'm this is still what I'm going to say, because this is right. what I want to do. So, again, uh, we had to continue to tell these stories because we have so much resistance from even each other. And I know what you've been fighting this for 30 years. I'm, I'm pretty sure you have had a lot of resistance from people that you've been telling these stories to. And yeah, so, a lot of people... Even he said he got a letter the other day that the person said, I can't believe that you're innocent. You know, I, I don't see an innocent person being in jail for 30 years. Prove it to me. You know, you you calling or writing somebody as a pen pal, telling them to prove they're innocent to you. Right. I like, are, is, is they going to put some money on your books to help you get out? Is they going to help pay for an attorney? You don't have to prove nothing to them. Right. And that doesn't that don't make no sense. Right. Diane? Uh, yes, uh, I was just listening when uh, Tammy was talking about uh, the way that uh, judge, the trial was a trial by judge, Judge Richard Hathaway. It was astonishing to me when I read that Judge Hathaway sat there while uh, James Gonzalez, who was the AP, the assistant prosecutor, ordered the police, Ronald Gale, he cited in my article, uh, to arrest Carl Collins, not Carl, Curtis Collins, the witness, after he recanted on the stand. They arrested him right off the stand for recanting, for telling the truth. Now, I'm sorry, that judge needs to go to prison as well. How can a judge sit there and allow that to happen? This man was trying to tell the truth. But, it, but and Hathaway's been on Kim Worthy's staff forever. She's he's uh, one of the got one of the top positions on her staff. For a minute, he was the Wayne County Treasurer. Wow! So that you know, it's just uh, for for that to be going on. It it, yeah, it the depth of corruption is is bottomless. Yes, and then also you know it's part of our fault too because we vote for people by name recognition. We don't study. We don't you know. Some of these people have been in office for so many years and you can't even tell what they have done, you know, because we just go for the name. And so we had to do better than we had to because these are our family members that are constantly being put in these prisons <laughs> uh, wrongfully or over sentence. And it's just, you know, people still continue to do their job. People continue to work somewhere else in the same 
in the same um, system that's been corrupt or that's been called out on something. So I don't know. Go ahead, Reverend Tia. I was going to say, if, if we can have homework, Jay, I was just going to, to um, let everybody know. Put in Google and put prosecutors won't charge Detroit officers. You just you don't have to finish it. Just put in prosecutors won't charge Detroit officers. And I want you to take a moment and see how many articles come up. How many people? When you look at it like that, it's astounding. I mean, in this in and what, what comes up is probably not a total amount, but it is mind-boggling. And so, yeah, we got homework. We got to do our due, due diligence. Let's see, see what's happening in your own community. And then take action. Mm -hmm. Take action. Mm -hmm. It's time, like I said earlier, they got to be uncomfortable. They need to be uncomfortable. Their jobs should not be that secure. Right. When As we're talking, I'm thinking about Devontae Sanford. And, you know, he was 14 years old. And he spent all the eight, what, eight years in prison? For, and, mm -hmm. and how they put that story together? Diane. Diane. Oh, hi. Oh, yeah. Hi. I wanted to uh, raise from my experience working with the Detroit Coalition Against Police Brutality. I worked with them for 10 years. Uh, and during the time I was with the Michigan Citizen and previous to that. And every time that a member of a family in Detroit, beginning with Arnetta Grable, who led the, that coalition against Eugene Brown, who was the cop that killed her son, and two other men in separate incidents, none of them justified. Uh, we went to, uh, after we finally won a ruling in the Michigan Supreme Court, uh, allowing the report, the internal report on Eugene Brown to be released that they called the Shoulders Report, which recommended charges be brought against him. All of us from the Coalition Against Police Brutality, the family members went down to Kim Worthy's office to demand that he be charged. She refused. She said, oh, we've seen that document. We've always had that document. And uh, ever all the cases since then, if you go online on my newspaper and put in Detroit Coalition Against Police Brutality, I have a whole display of all the people that have been killed in Detroit since 1992 that I know of by the police. Kim Worthy has refused, despite active organizing by the families, to charge any of the cops involved. None of them have been held accountable. They've gone on with their lives. Eugene Brown went and went to college. Now he's retired and is enjoying his life. And, you know, as uh, Lamar and the two other men lie in their graves. Yeah, Eugene Brown, I remember um, we, we discussed that on here with um attorney um dave robinson he, yes attorney he wrote robinson. It, yeah yes. he wrote it in his book if you guys get this book you he wrote about that story so and we had him on here and we talked about that so um um and diane you said there's 40 more than 40 
cops who have killed and have been covered in yeah, the truth. That's, uh, Is that right? yeah. That I, I name every cop I can find when I cover a story. These newspapers won't name the cops. They won't name the assistant prosecutors. I look for those names so that they're held accountable in some kind of way, at least in the public eye. And yeah. uh, the, you know, so it's at least, I'm trying to think how many people, there's a display that I put up of all the people that have been killed by police over the time. Now, Kim Worthy, says always brags about how she was the one that uh prosecuted the case of buds and okay, never oh no i haven't um a buds and a nevers okay and she has not and she wasn't the one that actually charged them she was just the ap she has not charged a single cop since 1992 for killing anybody they may have charged them for lesser crimes but she has not charged a single cop. That's a phony uh, resume on her part. Wow. Wow, is all I can say. So <laughs> that's why we're here, to expose and give people a platform and to get these truths out. It's not nothing we're, we're making up. These are facts. <laughs> these are facts. Yolanda, did you have anything else that you want to add before we get? Well, you know, um, it's you know, it's hard for me to tell his story without asking questions because his case has so much detail to it. It's just just by me just saying stuff about it. I need to know like what part you want to hear, like because it's a his case is it's it's crazy like that. His case has started off with Andre Lee Nelson murder such and such, and after that his name just disappears. Wow. Yeah, I remember so, you saying that, how his, his, it's the whole story going on and Andre is not even in the story. In, in the story. It's just that because he's been convicted and he's um, and he signed a confession. So other than that, that's it. Right. It's how, terrible. And how can somebody sign a confession that they can't even read? exactly and we called down there every day and we told them that you know my brother cannot read or write she's like i know because we they even checked the paper off saying that he was illiterate so they checked that off and said that he was illiterate but by use i say so would y'all use a, a video cam or, or, or a tape recorder she said oh we're not using that so if you know that he's illiterate and cannot read and write why wouldn't you use something else Dan, I got to find these glasses. Yeah, go ahead, Yolanda. Yeah, okay. so why wouldn't you use something else, like a, 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 a video or a camera? We, we called down there every day because they was like, we, every day we called down and it was like he's still being integrated. I'm like, well, how long are you going to keep integrity, you know, um, you know, asking him questions about this murder? It's obvious he told you that where he was at, but you told his statement up. She told his statement up because she said she doesn't believe what he's saying. So he signed the paper and they wrote, she wrote it out and he signed the paper. So if you can't read and write some of those words in there, he wouldn't have never even thought about. Yeah. That's why I know for a fact. He didn't know how to spell his mom's name. Thank you, Yolanda. So, Attorney Matt, what would you like to leave us with 
Well, you know, the past is something we can't change, but we can learn from it, okay? And unfortunately, the way the system is, it's always an uphill battle. And it, it shouldn't be that way. Um, I guess I guess what I want to leave you with is is this. Something to perhaps encourage you or give you more ammunition when you're dealing with people who say if they didn't do it, they wouldn't have been found guilty. Our state constitution has got built into it an automatic right to go to the court of appeals, okay? Mm-hmm. So if you're convicted of something in circuit court, you've got an automatic right to go to the court of appeals, all right? Now you say, well, okay, so so what? It, it's a big so what? Because if the system was that good, if the system was that fail-safe, you would not have an automatic and trying constitutional right to appeal, mm-hmm. you understand? Right. Because I will give the framers of the Michigan Constitution 1963 credit for this. They knew and saw the importance of having rights to appeal because them, even with systemic racism and, and, and white supremacy, you know, so it it is not um, it is it, it is not a situation where you should let somebody tell you that you had your chance in circuit court they proved you guilty fair and square that's the end of it that is never the end of it. that is never ever the end of it okay so my encouragement would be to people who got people in the system right now don't stop the fight don't stop the fight because i'm telling you that the way the system is set up it is designed to brush off irritants but if you stay there, if you stay there and stay there and stay there, yeah. that's our salvation. So it's a war of attrition. Now here the sister talking about what happened, what happened with her with her brother. What wasn't this the case that we spoke about maybe a couple months ago? Yeah. And 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 it was uh, I I heard about uh, illiteracy then, and I'm I, I guess I'm just I'm curious though. Uh, two cases. How, how is it? I'm sorry. There was two cases. It was Yolanda's case and Tammy's brother case as well. Okay, and, okay. And 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 so I'm 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 curious though. Did both of those have a bench trial? Yeah, they had trials. No, 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 a bench trial. Oh. Is that with a jury? No, no. That's with the I judge. I don't know about all that. No, no. It was had some You say excuse me. With the judge, Yolanda. With the oh, judge, no, they, Carl, was with, Carl's was a bench trial. Because I don't understand how that went, but no. Tammy said that Kyle had a bench trial. Okay, okay. How about how about the other person? Yolanda, was Andre a bench trial or did he have a jury? He had a jury. Okay. So, well, Andre didn't. Okay, well, I... I will, I will give you the 40 years experience I've had. I'm saying, and for all people listening, all people listening, unless your case is one strictly of a legal issue, not a factual issue, for example, uh, uh, a legal issue of a, of, a, of a suppression motion, okay, let's say somebody 
you know, wants to suppress a gun for illegal uh, search and seizure. Never have a bench trial. <laughs> Never have a bench trial because you've got to understand how people become judges in the first place, okay? Most people are judges. They come from a prosecutorial background, okay? Okay? It's very common to see a prosecutor ascend to the bench and run for judge. Very rarely do you have somebody from a defense background like myself who was successful in running for judge. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Because people tend to distrust defense attorneys and they tend to be very pro-police and police have unions and support who they want. So so I, I guess when you ask me, Jay Love, what it is I, I, I want to impart, I would much rather have my fate put in the hands of 12 people where all I need to do is convince one of them that the verdict should be not guilty, okay, as opposed to a judge that most of them come from a prosecutorial background who tend to look at trials as slow pleas of guilty, okay, slow pleas of guilty. So mm -hmm. when you have a bench trial, it is infinitely more hard to get that reversed as opposed to a jury trial, okay? The standards mm -hmm. are different, okay? So mm -hmm. I would encourage everybody, have a jury trial. I don't care how bad the facts are. At least you got a chance to try to get somebody to say, well, maybe it, uh, maybe it looks bad, but I'm not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. Maybe you get a Tia Littlejohn on that jury, okay? Or maybe you get an Alexander Hughes, you know, you know, or maybe a Jay Love who says, well, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced to a moral certainty. I'm not convinced, Mr. Prosecutor, that you have proven each and every element of this case to me at, that I would know it as well as I know my name. Because right. that's what it means to believe something beyond a reasonable doubt. That means mm -hmm. you feel as strong about it as you know your name. If I asked each and every one of you to tell me your name, you could do it in a matter of seconds. Why? Because you have no reasonable doubt about what your name is. And so that's what I would encourage people to keep challenging the system in terms of these folks that, that are, especially the people that have been illiterate. How can you say a person is guilty when we aren't even sure they understood everything that's going on? How do you know they even were able to help their attorney and, and, and be competent to stand trial? How do you know that? You got to keep pitching those questions, Jay Love. Yes. Thank you, Attorney Matt. So before we go, I want to have some announcements. Uh, one is um, the wrongful conviction support group. Again, it's coming up. It's this um, next month. It's going to be on March the 17th. So especially for family members that are going through these wrongful convictions, join in. Um, if you can't go to the Facebook page of Survivor Speaks to get the details or click on that UR, Q, QR code with your phone, um, it's a great place to have a conversation and just, you know, be with other people that are growing through what you're going through. And on that same Saturday, there's a wrongful conviction task force. And we're coming together to implement, to change, working on policies like Revetia spoke on before. So join us with, on that as well. Um, 
Again, the final push for Susan Brown. We're uh, advocating for her uh, clemency. She's going to be on next month, um, Women History Month. Um, she's going to do maybe a two or three part series. I'm not sure yet. But um, her story, go to this link. She has an also incredible story of, of innocence and in prison. Um, you have to hear Susan Brown's story. So um, please go to this link and support us uh, for clemency for Susan Brown. Also the survivor, I mean, Silent Cry, Mr. Rana Vaughn having a gala awards um, coming up March the 11th from six to nine, honoring mothers of the criminal justice movement and change makers in the community. This is also a fundraiser for Daniel Jones Scholarship Fund and Harvesting Hope. It's gonna be at the Marygrove College on Six Mile in Detroit. You can go on Eventbrite, put in the um, Silent Cry um, Gala Awards and they will give you all the details. The tickets is like $25 and it's there's gonna be dinner and I think you're gonna have a drink ticket. So please everyone support this event. And again, Donate to Voice of Detroit. Um, Miss Diane has done some incredible um, articles and she's been doing this work um, for years. And we have to keep on supporting these um, platforms that helps get these stories out. So you guys, if you can, go to um, www.voiceofdetroit.net, read the stories and you um, will see um, all of these stories that she's been talking about, the wrongful convictions from Wayne County and surrounding areas. So again, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next week. And again, on turning a moment into a movement. Good night, everyone.